Thanks to Tony and Mark for leading us. Those were good songs. So tonight we're going to talk about the Trinity. You're going to need your Bible because we're going to look at some verses and read a little bit more than we have the last couple of weeks, I think. Tonight's lesson is a little bit unique in that um, when I teach on the doctrine of revelation or even when I teach on the doctrine of God, um, it doesn't make me anxious. I don't feel like I need to be super careful. I feel like I have a grasp on those topics and some of the other things we're going to talk about I feel like uh, I'm comfortable talking about. And it's not that I don't feel like I have a grasp on the Trinity, but it's that I don't have a grasp on it because it's like nothing else you can compare it to. So when you start talking about it, sometimes it's easy to say too much when you're talking about the Trinity. And so the challenge tonight as we think about it, and the challenge for you as you teach your kids or your grandkids or whoever is not to say too much. Because if you say too much on this doctrine, then you wade off the deep end and you go into error. Um, It's also unique because the word Trinity, many of you know this, is not a biblical word. It's not found in the Bible. I cannot point you to a verse that says, this is the Trinity. It's a Latin word that means sort of threeness or three-in-oneness, trinitas. Um, Some people look at that and they say, we don't need it. It's not in the Bible. We don't need it. Uh, If you can't show it to me in a Bible verse and make it plain to me and clear to me, then why do I need to, to, uh, to adhere to it and believe in it? And some people say it's just foreign. It's something that man or the church or whoever has taken and just imposed onto the Bible and there's all sorts of interesting theories about, you know, people say, well, it came from this pagan myth or it came from that. It didn't come from any pagan myth. It didn't come from anybody wanting to add something to the Bible. It came from the church responding to false teaching, okay? We didn't need the word Trinity for a lot of years after Jesus walked on the earth and died and went back to heaven, we didn't need to use the word Trinity because there was a general understanding among all the believers that there was only one God. Everyone agreed on that. There's only one God. And everyone understood that the Father is God. And everyone understood that Jesus claimed to be God. And the apostles believed that. And everyone understood that the Holy Spirit was God. So nobody really had an issue. We, we all just said there's one God. And we read the Bible. And we know that the Father is God. And the Son is God. And the Spirit is God. And everyone was good with that. But then some guys came along, and two of the first heretics that came along and challenged this was a guy named Sibelius and a guy named Arius. And Sibelius came along, and he uh, argued for a view that's called modalism, basically saying, I believe in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. I just believe that it was like a succession. It was one mode of godhood at a time so first there was the father that was the mode he was in and then god was not that anymore and he became the son and you had god the son and then after he died and ascended and all that now we have god the spirit and it's sort of like one at a time and now we have god the spirit the problem with that is there's passages in the bible like jesus's baptism where jesus gets baptized and the father speaks from heaven and the holy spirit comes down and they're all there at the same time And so people listened to Sibelius and said, oh, that's not what we believe. 
And he said, wait a minute, but I believe in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And they said, yeah, but that's not what we believe. So a a new teaching arose, a false teaching arose, and the church had to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not what we've been talking about all these years. And they had to clarify their position. They had to do the same thing with Arius. Arius came along, and he was a bishop and an influential guy. And Arius began teaching people that Jesus was created. He was not eternally God. He was not equal with God. He's way higher than us, way more important than us, way more significant than us. But he was created by the Father. There was a time when he did not exist. And when he started saying that, everybody said, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not at all what we believe about Jesus. We've never believed that about Jesus. So as you have these false teachers popping up, you have the church trying to clarify, wait a minute, this is what we believe. And you had guys like Athanasius and eventually Augustine and a lot of the Eastern church fathers that eventually sort of bring this idea of the Trinity to the forefront. And so we're talking about the Trinity tonight. And I didn't put this on your outline or the screen, and I realized that right before we started tonight, and I kind of kicked myself. But here's the classic formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity, okay? God is one in essence. He is three in person. One in essence. There's only one God, and he is three in person. One in essence, three in person. And a lot of times, today even, when we try to explain this or we try to make sense of it or we try to understand it, we go a little bit too far in explaining it. And that's a little bit understandable. Imagine that I sent you down the hall to the two-year-olds and the three-year-olds, okay? Twos and threes down the hall. And I said, I want you to give them a science lesson and explain to these two and three-year-olds what the sun is. Two and three-year-olds. I want them to understand the sun. And this is some of the stuff that I want them to understand. I want those kids to understand that the sun contains 99.8% of the total mass in our solar system. Explain that to those kids. And I want you to explain to those kids that you could fit 1.3 million earths inside the sun. 1.3 million. Help them make sense of how that math works out, okay? Two and three-year-olds. And uh, I want you to explain to them that at the center of the sun, the the sun's core, uh, it is more dense, 150 times more dense than water. Go down and explain some of that stuff to the kids. Help them to understand the sun. You would go down and you you wouldn't do any of that, right? Like you'd say, you would go like get a soccer ball and you'd say, okay, this is the sun. Then you'd go get a tennis ball and you say, here's the earth. And it kind of goes around like this, and you'd show them this thing. And they would understand something about the sun and the earth, but really at the end of the day, the sun is nothing like a soccer ball, right? Nothing. So maybe you would say, okay, soccer ball is not so good. Let me get a flashlight. Flashlight. The sun is like a flashlight. You're helping little kids to understand this. Say, the sun's like a flashlight. Here's the sun. But let's be honest, the sun isn't anything like a flashlight. They both have light, and that's about it. And sometimes when we try to explain the Trinity to kids or to teenagers or to adults, we go a little bit too far and we come up with ideas that we think are kind of cutesy and sound good and make you feel better about it, but really they're not all that helpful. So I'm going to give you some examples of what I'm talking about. I'm not giving you these to help you understand it. 
I'm giving you these to say these are not great ways to try to understand it, okay? One is to say that the Trinity is like ice, water, and water vapor, right? It's the same stuff, but it can be ice, or it can be water, or it can be gas. That's really not a good way to explain the Trinity, because when you use that explanation, you're basically Sibelius, saying it can be one thing at one time. It can be ice, or it can be water, but not both at the same time, or it can be gas, but not ice and gas at the same time, and you get it all a little bit mixed up, and it's really not that helpful. Another way people try to explain it is to say a three-leaf clover. Trinity's kind of like a three-leaf clover. There's one clover, but there's three leaves on it, and again, I would just say, you know what, God's really not anything like a three-leaf clover. Not the best way to explain that. Um, I know it's hard to understand and wrap your arms around. In fact, it's impossible to all the way wrap your arms around, but I just don't think that's very helpful. Uh, Some people say the Trinity is like an egg. You have one egg, and there's a shell, and there's a yolk, and there's the white, and it's all in there together. And again, I don't think that's very helpful. One that is maybe a little more helpful, a little, but still not very good, is to think about yourself, or for our purposes tonight, to think about me. So that's me in all three pictures, right? On the picture on the left, it's Landon, the husband. And on the picture on the middle, it's me and Richard, and we're coaching basketball, so it's Landon, the coach. And then on the right, it's me and Zach, and that's Landon, the pastor, okay? So you say, there's only one Landon, but he's a husband, and he's a coach, and he's a pastor. But again, that's not very good because I'm not Zach's husband. Doesn't work that way. And I'm not my wife's basketball coach. So it just kind of breaks down. And you say, "Ah, I don't know that that's the best way to do it. Some people get frustrated by it, um, all of this stuff. There's a guy named Donald Miller, and... I'm amazed how much Christians like his writings. I don't think they're helpful. And he wrote a book called Blue Like Jazz, and it was one of those on the front you know, shelf of the Christian bookstores forever and ever, and people said it's so great. And in the book, he kind of makes fun of the idea of the Trinity almost and just kind of calls it like it's funny math. Well, that's just not a great way to refer to the Godhead, funny math. Um, there's a book... Uh, another bestseller called The Shack. And in The Shack, they try to make sense of the Trinity and they present one member of the Trinity like this and another member like this. And you read it, and, and I've read just some of it, not all of it, because I couldn't get through it. And you read it and you're like, well, that's not at all what God's like. That's not helpful for understanding the Trinity at all. It's just sort of mocking the Trinity. So I think about all these things and I come to who I think is my number one all-time favorite Baptist theologian. And it's a guy named John Dagg. He looks like the funnest guy you could ever hang out with, right? John Dagg. If I could go back and hang out with any Baptist, this guy's the top three Baptist of all time. Uh, You'd put Charles Spurgeon up there as an all-time great Baptist. And I don't know who else you'd put up there, but you'd put John Dagg up there. And he writes in the Manual of Theology, as his systematic theology book, he writes about the Trinity, and this is what he says. Talking about all these illustrations, okay? All such illustrations darken counsel with words without knowledge. He lifted that out of Job. 
right? Who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? He says, the darken counsel with words without knowledge. What shall we liken unto the Lord? And the obvious answer is nothing. There is nothing in creation that you can hold up and say, God is like this. We just sang, he's holy, holy, holy. And more than anything else, that means he's not like anything else that you've ever experienced or will ever experience or could ever think up. He's different than all of it. So what can we liken unto the Lord? Nothing. These efforts to explain the doctrine are not simply fruitless, but they lead to error. And so he goes through some of these things, and it just comes down in the end, and I agree with him completely. He says, that's not helpful for thinking about it. It doesn't help you think more clearly about God. All it does is bring God in his holiness down so that we can try to comprehend what he's like. And when you bring him down, you take him off his throne, you, you rob him of his holiness, you're not talking about God anymore. You're just thinking about talking about somebody that you've made up in your own head. So those are not helpful things. So we're going to ask this question. We're going to try to answer it as clearly as we can. What do I need to know about the Trinity? What do I need to know? Number one, the Bible says that there is only one God. Only one God. However... Even the Old Testament contains hints that there are multiple persons within the Godhead. I know it makes your brain hurt. I know it doesn't really compute. I know it's challenging, but this is what Scripture says. There's only one God. But even in the Old Testament, we find these hints that there are multiple persons within the Godhead. We'll talk about the New Testament being more clear about this in a second, but... Right now we're thinking Old Testament. So fill those blanks in and let's read some some Bible verses. Look at Deuteronomy 6. This is the classic Old Testament passage teaching us that there's only one God. This is Moses and Deuteronomy talking to the children of the Exodus generation. The Exodus generation has died. The children are getting ready to go into the promised land. Moses is about to die. And he's prepping them. He's getting them ready to go in. He's going to put Joshua in command. So Deuteronomy 6, look at verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here's something kind of interesting. I read this this week. I've never come across this before. That word one in verse 4, the Lord our God... The Lord is one. The word one is the same word used for Adam and Eve when the two become one. Same, same idea. It's really not one, it's two, but the two become one. It's the same word used in the Old Testament. Uh, do you remember when they, they go into the promised land, the spies, and they bring back a cluster of grapes? They bring back one cluster of grapes. There's multiple things within it, but it's one whole together, if that makes sense. It's the same word used for the people of Israel. There's several places in the Old Testament where it says they came together as one people, or they spoke as one people. There's all these different people, but they come together as one. And it's the same word here saying, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Look at Isaiah 45. We're not going to read all these, but we'll read a few of them. Isaiah 45. Verse 5. 
I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. That's pretty clear. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Go to the New Testament. Look at 1 Timothy 2.5. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And we'll talk more about the person of Christ in a few weeks. But right here, the first phrase in 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God. And then we'll just look at one more. Look at James 2.19. You know this verse. James 2.19, you believe that God is one. Well, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. So everyone knows, James says, demons included, that there is only one God. However, Old Testament contains these hints that there are multiple persons within the Godhead. And I'm going to let you look these up. Let me just mention what they, what they talk about. In Psalm 110, this is the passage where David is writing, and he says, the Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Lord. David the king has God, Yahweh, in front of him, and he has some Lord. Who is the Lord of the king? In the New Testament, Jesus says, well, it's me. I'm David's Lord. The Messiah is David's Lord. And both of them receive this, this title of divinity in Psalm 110. Isaiah 63, God says, you've grieved my spirit. Because you've grieved my spirit, I'm going to bring judgment on you. To grieve God's spirit is to grieve God. It's sort of the same thing. Judges 6.11 and following. You can go back and read Judges 6.11. It's the story of the angel of the Lord coming and appearing to somebody. And you're reading about this figure, this person who looks like a person. And they're appearing to someone in the book of Judges. And all of a sudden, it's not just the angel of the Lord speaking, but it's the Lord speaking. And we know that no one can see God. God's a spirit. But here you have this person speaking, and it's... It said that the Lord is speaking. So all these passages give you hints that there are multiple persons within the Godhead. Here's the second thing you need to know about the Trinity. The Bible recognizes three persons as fully and truly God. Three different persons as truly and fully God. And for space, I didn't put this first line uh, on your notes, but it kind of goes without saying, right, that God the Father is God. Nobody really argues with that, so I didn't put it on your notes. But when you open the Bible and you read, in the beginning, God, we're talking about the Father. God the Father is creating. And when you get to John 17, 1, Jesus prays, and he prays to his Father. Okay, so we have this understanding that the Father is God. Not really in debate. More debatable, you have verses that say, God the Son Talk about God, the Son, Jesus being God. And we're going to look at several of these. I just want you to read them and, and, and hear them. Because sometimes you hear, if you're turning on the Discovery Channel or you're turning on, you know, some kind of TV program about the Bible, you'll say, well, Jesus, you know, he never really claimed to be God. And the Bible's really not that clear that, that they thought he was God. That's something that was made up hundreds of years later. They made that up later. They added that. But look at Mark chapter 2, verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My sons, your sins are forgiven. 
Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or rise and take up your bed and walk? It's easier to say, by the way, anyone can say your sins are forgiven. How, do you, how can you prove that? Your sins are forgiven. Well, how do you know? It's much harder to say rise up and walk because if you don't get up and walk, you realize there's no power in those words. So which one is easier? And then he says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. He rose immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were amazed and glorified God saying, we have never saw anything like this. When they thought Jesus was blaspheming by claiming to forgive sins, Jesus didn't say, oh, no, no, you misunderstand what I'm saying. He said, I'm going to prove that I have authority to do exactly that. So he claims this divine prerogative. Look at John chapter 1. John 1. says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And you go on, and you read, and you realize that the Word, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the beginning, the Son was with the Father, and the Son was God, and he created everything in the beginning. Look at, what else do we want to read? Look at John 20, verse 28. This is after the resurrection, and Jesus appears to his disciples, and Thomas is there. In John 20, 28, Thomas answered him and said, My Lord and my God. He acknowledges the divinity of Jesus, and Jesus doesn't correct him, stop him, tell him to, to hold off or to be careful. He accepts that, that description. Look at Colossians 2, 9. Colossians 2.9 It's talking about Jesus and it says in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The deity dwells in Jesus. That's what we mean when we say he is fully and truly God. He's not just like a part of God. He is fully and truly God. He's not half man, half God. He's fully and truly God. Really, God. One more. Look at Revelation 5.12. I'll let you look the rest of these up. Revelation 5.12. There's worship taking place in heaven. And there's all these angels, myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. Verse 12. They say with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He's receiving worship in heaven. That's something reserved for God alone. So the Son is God. And then also, Bible recognizing three persons as God, the, the Spirit is recognized as God. And we'll just read a few of these so you get the idea. Look at Genesis 1-2. Way back in the beginning. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God's Spirit is present and active even from the very beginning. Go to the middle of the Bible, Psalm 139. 139. One thirty nine verse seven. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? David says, I can't get away from your spirit, which means I'm always in your presence. To be in the presence of the Spirit is to be in the presence of God. It's in heaven, it's in Sheol, it's in the morning, to the ends of the earth, darkness, doesn't matter where I'm at, I cannot get away from your presence, I cannot get away from your spirit. Look at Acts 5. We'll just read one more here. Acts 5. Verse 3 and 4. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds for the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, did it, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Lying to the Holy Spirit is the same thing as lying to God because the Holy Spirit is God. So you have these three persons recognized as God. Thirdly, we're going to move through these last two kind of quick. The Bible describes a mysterious unity among the three persons recognized as God. There's a unity, and it's a mysterious unity. It's not detailed out. It's not spelled out. And I'll just give you lots of good passages here to look at. I just want you to mark Matthew 28 and John 14. Matthew 28, Jesus is giving the Great Commission, and what does he say? Baptize them in the name, singular, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Grammatically, you would say, if you wanted to be correct, in the names of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But Jesus very intentionally says, the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. There's a unity there that's a mysterious thing. In John 14, you remember when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Thomas is just, he, his mind is exploding, and he can't take it all in. And he says, if you will just show us the Father, that's enough. And Jesus says, Thomas, you've seen me. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what the Father's like, you look at me. There's a unity there that's hard to explain, hard to wrap your brain around, but the Bible describes it. Number four, the Bible teaches us that the Trinity worked together in creation and in salvation. Creation and salvation. A lot of these verses I gave you, especially in John, they talk about the Father sending the Son, and now the Son is going to send the Spirit. They're all working together for the same purposes. Let's just read Ephesians 1. It's the clearest passage in the Bible that explains how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit work together in salvation. Ephesians 1, and we're just going to read 3 to 14, and I know that's, what, 10 verses, but in the original Greek, it's only one sentence. 3 to 14 is one sentence, so it's one thought in Paul's mind. Blessed be the God and Father. And as you read this, you can just circle all the references to God or the Father or the Son or the Spirit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
Even as he, that's the Father, chose us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, the Father, predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his, the Father's, will. To the praise of his, the Father's, glorious grace, with which he, the Father, has blessed us in the beloved, Jesus. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his, Jesus' blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, Jesus' grace, which he, Jesus, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him, Jesus, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of his, the Father's will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, all to the praise of his glory. You see the Father, you see the Son, you see the Spirit working together in salvation, just like you see them working together in creation. So that's what you need to know, and you keep it as simple and as basic as that. There's one God. The Bible talks about three different persons being God. There's a unity to those persons, and they work together. They're all together on the same page. Now you say, who cares? Why do I need to know that? Why is that important? I'm going to give you a couple of reasons, and they're not original to me. I took these from a guy named Bruce Ware, and he's written a book called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's a really great book, and Bruce Ware is a great theologian. And in the book, in the very beginning, before you jump in and read, he says, I'm going to tell you before you read this book about the Trinity why you need to read this book about the Trinity. Why is it important that you understand these things? And so I think he has, uh, he has more reasons than I've given you. I've left a few out and I've combined a few uh, for space and time, but I'm going to give you four. Okay, number one. Doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most important distinguishing doctrines of the Christian faith. It is central and necessary for the Christian faith to be what it is. And his point here is to say this is at the very heart of our faith. And if you lose this doctrine, you lose our faith and you have a different faith. Something completely different entirely. Listen, you've heard all the stories about the Crusades and the fights with the Christians and the Muslims and all that stuff, right? When all that stuff was taking place and Islam was really expanding geographically by the sword, a lot of times they would take over a city and there would be churches in that city because the place today where Islam dominates, you understand, once was dominated by Christianity. There was churches all over that area. So the the Muslims would come and they would take this city and there would be this church and they didn't want to just tear it down and destroy it because it's a nice building. So they would convert it into a mosque. But in doing that, they would take down all the crosses or they would plaster over all the the paintings or the frescoes or the mosaics or whatever. They would cover up all the Christian symbols. And often, they would write something like this on the wall. They would write on the wall, There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. That's like the central creed of Islam, right? There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. And then they would add something because they're taking a church that's been converted And they would say, there is no God but Allah, Muhammad is his prophet, and he does not have a son. Saying, we don't believe in this Trinity stuff about the Father and the Son at all. 
We believe there's only one God and he's in absolute unity and there's not this multiple personhood within the Godhead. And they just wrote that up on the wall to make it very plain. We know this building used to be used for Trinitarian worship, but that is not what we are doing. And they understood this is a deal breaker. This sets your faith apart as something completely different entirely. So you look around today, we don't have a huge Muslim population in Odessa, but we have Mormons in Odessa. They don't accept the doctrine of the Trinity. They believe in a multiplicity of gods without any unity to them. We have Jehovah's Witness in Odessa. They believe the Arian heresy, that Jesus is really important, but he was created. He is not equal with the Father. So they deny the Trinity. They won't say the word. They won't agree to to those ideas. Something that may surprise you is to know that there are Pentecostals who deny the Trinity. They're called Oneness Pentecostals, and they buy into the old lie of Sibelius, of modalism, that there was the Father, and then there was the Son, and now there's the Holy Spirit. And they don't use the word Trinity, and they don't think it's biblical. Uh, they laugh at you know people who use it. And we have all of those folks here in Odessa. And they all go to church, and they all live pretty clean, normal, respectable lives. And they all look at you and say, I believe in God. And they all look at you and say, I believe in Jesus. But underneath all that, they're talking about a very, very different God than the one that we're talking about and the one that we see in the scriptures. And the bottom line is this. If God has revealed to us in the Bible that there's only one God, that three persons are God, and that those three persons are united together, that's what you've got to believe. It doesn't matter how much that hurts your brain or it doesn't matter how you want to try to make sense of it and explain it away somehow. That's what you ought to believe. Um, If you change this doctrine where he says it is necessary for the Christian faith to be what it is, when you change this doctrine of the Trinity, you have to go back and rewrite your doctrine of revelation, of how God speaks to his people. It completely changes. Because you and I believe in the Old Testament, Peter tells us this, the Holy Spirit carried people along as they wrote down the scriptures. And the Holy Spirit breathed out these words. They're God's words. But what do you do if you're a modalist and you don't believe the Spirit was around in the Old Testament? Who was there to inspire the scriptures? How do you know that they're true and trustworthy and without error? You don't. It changes completely. Your doctrine of creation changes because you and I believe John 1 that says in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. In the beginning, everything that was created was created by Him. We believe that. Well, everyone else who denies the Trinity has a different view of things. They don't agree with that view of of creation. Salvation, we just read in Ephesians how the Father and the Son and the Spirit work together, God working for our salvation. If you deny the Trinity, then you've got God plus some other lesser beings working together for our salvation, and, and that doctrine changes. So this is necessary. Okay. Secondly, worship of the true and living God consciously acknowledges the relationship and roles of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our life of prayer, Christian's life of prayer, must rightly acknowledge the roles of Father, Son, and Spirit as we pray to the Father through the Son, in the power of the Spirit. If you're going to worship God rightly, you have to think rightly about Him. 
That's why the first three commandments deal with how you think about God and approach God. Verse 4, really. Have no other gods besides him. Do not worship idols. Do not take his name in vain. And you keep the Sabbath day holy as a day of worship. He's saying, you've got to know me for who I am and worship me as I am. And think back. Do you remember the story in Exodus 32 when Moses is up on the mountain getting those rules? What's Aaron and the people doing down below? You remember? They're making a calf out of gold. They take all the earrings. They plundered the Egyptians uh, on their way out. And they take all that gold that God gave them. And they give it to Aaron. And Aaron takes a tool and he fashions it and he engraves it and he makes this calf and they set it up and what do they call that calf? Bevo? Moo Moo? They call that calf Yahweh. They're not trying to, you know, reinvent something completely out of thin air. They're just thinking incorrectly about the one true and living God, Yahweh. They call it the Lord. They're worshiping the Lord, but they have this idol. And God says, you might have the right name on the outside of all this stuff you're doing, but it's not worship that honors me. And you understand there's lots of people who would go to a church building on Sunday mornings and would say, I'm here to worship God. And you would say, that's great. I'm glad you're there to worship God, but just because you call something God doesn't make it God. An idol of your mind is no different than an idol you make with your hands. It's no different. And so if you're going to worship correctly, if you're going to pray correctly, you've got to understand this. Jot down John 4, 23 to 24. Jesus says, the Father wants people who will worship in spirit and in truth. Worship that is not according to the truth is not worship. It's just noise. Got to worship according to the truth. Remember when Jesus was praying and the disciples came, and I'm thinking about prayer now, and the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray? What did he say? I mean, he's teaching them how. Okay, you're taking notes, you got your notebooks out. You pray to your what? Father. You pray to your father. That's how Jesus did it over and over again. That's how he told his disciples to do it. I'm not saying your prayer doesn't count if you don't start it with father. But that's who we're approaching. That's the mindset Jesus wants us to come with, that we're praying to the father. We read First Timothy that says Jesus is our mediator. We're praying through Jesus. And you can jot down Romans 8, 26 to 27. says the Spirit helps us, intercedes for us. When we don't even know what to pray, the Spirit is helping us pray. So that's what he's talking about when he says, we pray to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Spirit. When you say at the end of your prayer, in Jesus' name, that's not like just the nice way you end it. And you shouldn't just say it as a rote thing. It should be a reminder to you, I only get to talk to the Father because I'm coming through Jesus in his name. I don't get to come on my own, but I get to come through Jesus. And every time you pray, you should have in your mind, I'm a foolish person. I don't really even know what I ought to be asking for, but I know the Spirit is interceding for me and praying for me as I'm praying. Okay, number three. The triune relationships of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit cause us to marvel at the unity of the triune God and at the diversity within the triune God. 
And that's basically Ware's way of saying, you're not ever going to really get this. You're not ever going to really wrap your brain around this because God is holy. He's not like you. He's altogether above you and different than you, and you're never going to be able to fully grasp it. You shouldn't be able to. He's God and you're not. So there's a little bit of a mystery here. Last one is this. Triune relationships of the Father, Son, and Spirit cause us to marvel at the authority submission structure that exists eternally in the three persons of the Godhead, each of whom is equally and fully God. Doctrine of the Trinity provides one of the most important and neglected patterns for how human life and human relationships are to be conducted. I'll let you jot that down and then we'll talk about it. He's talking about authority and submission and he's talking about our relationships today. The Bible has a lot to say about authority and leadership and who should lead and who should follow, uh, how that should work in the home, how that should work in church. And a lot of people today look at that and say, man, that's just, that's just old-timey stuff. Uh, we don't need that stuff anymore. We don't have to listen to that. That's just, that was his culture. It's not our culture. And th- there's a really thorny problem for the people who say that, who say, you know, it's not that important that men are the leaders in their home And it's not that important that men are the leaders in church because that's just, our culture's different, so it's no big deal. And the really sticky, sticky problem is when you read the passages that call men to lead their families and call men to lead in their church, over and over and over again, the people talking about it connect it to what God is like. This is what God is like. And they're talking about within the Trinity, this is always the way it's been, there is a, a role and a, a, a position played by each member, and that involves authority and submission. We are never told that the Son tells the Father what to do. The Father tells the Son what to do, and He does it gladly. Jesus said it over and over again when He was walking around on the earth, right? I'm here to do my Father's will. He sent me. I'm here to do what He wants me to do. And we are never told that the Spirit is bossy in telling the Son or the Father what to do. It doesn't work that way. We're never even told that the Spirit tries to draw a lot of attention to himself. You would think in some churches today that the Spirit is trying to make himself the the star player or something. But the Bible says that's not the Spirit's job. The Spirit's job is to point people to Jesus, not to the Spirit. Where the Spirit is really moving, you're not going to see a bunch of people going wild and crazy about the Spirit. You're going to see people excited about Jesus because His job is to point people to Jesus. And we're told over and over in the Scriptures that the Father and the Son send the Spirit. And He goes. He does it. He submits to what they want Him to do. And you're, we hear that and we immediately think, so what you're saying is, like the Father's on mostly God then Jesus is a little bit less God, then the Spirit is down here like barely God. No, they're all three fully and truly God. And even within that relationship, there's authority and there's submission. And those are not 
bad things. Those are not things that are just the consequence of the fall. Those are things that are rooted in who God is. And just as God exists in this relationship where there's authority and there's submission, he creates people in his image and he expects them to live with authority and submission. And he doesn't want them to see it as a bad thing because it's part of who he is, it's part of his very nature. And so we don't get to change things like that just because we say, well, that's Paul's culture, it's not our culture. Well, it's God's culture. It's not based on Paul's culture, it's based on who God is. And until God changes, you don't get to change the way that he set things up here in this life. So there's a few reasons why it's important. Um, let me mention a few books to you. <clears throat> and then we'll wrap it up. Two books I have on here are connected. One is called Christian Beliefs and one is called Systematic Theology. And this one is Systematic Theology. It's like a big brick. If you go to seminary, this is one of the books that every, almost everybody has to read. And then this is like the Cliff's Notes version. Same guy, almost all the same content, just way, way, way shorter. And both are very, very helpful. Really, they are. And I promise you, any one of you could crack this open. I know that intimidates people. You could crack it open and read it and make sense of it. It's not rocket science. Uh, but there is the shorter version, if you like shorter. Um, I just mentioned two more. Um, if you want to read about the Trinity and you like studying about it, um, I mentioned the book by Bruce Ware, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Relationships, Roles, and Relevance. Uh, it's not a long book, and Bruce Ware is a really good author, and it's very helpful uh, if you want to study that. And then there's a book, I put it on here, it's a little bit more difficult reading, but uh, is not inaccessible, called Delighting in the Trinity by a guy named Michael Reeves. So I'll leave these up here if you want to look at those or flip through them. Uh, I know a few folks have, over the last few weeks, uh, looked at books and gone online and purchased some stuff, so I'll do this each week so that you can uh, have some opportunity to study uh, on your own. Here's what we're going to do. 